As a finance professional, you're constantly looking to learn from the best. Do you want to meet them? Join me and our panel of top industry experts at our next CFO Leadership Live event on November 2nd in Dallas, Texas, as we talk with a panel of CFOs about their top growth strategies and plans for a successful 2023. The workshop includes a complimentary buffet lunch and the chance to network with other DFW finance leaders. Head over to CFOLeadershipLive.com to secure your seat. Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results. With your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Huey Newsom. Huey is the Chief Financial Officer for Wayne County, Michigan, which includes Detroit. There, he oversees a $1.7 billion annual budget. Before that, Newsom served as the Chief Financial Officer for the City of Flint, Michigan helping to institute a recovery framework in the aftermath of the city's lead contamination water crisis. These assignments gave Huey an appreciation for the importance of establishing ways to measure risks from climate change and social injustices, as well as the importance of assessing how organizational activities impact climate change and social injustice. Because of this, he is working to help define how environmental, social, and governance, ESG, data, and reporting will materialize and how the finance department will support this effort. His work on the impact of climate change and on ESG has appeared in Route 50, Governing, and Forbes. Huey also volunteers for causes in which he believes, including nature conservation, environmental leadership, and establishing best practices in public sector finance. Huey is the CFO of one of the largest counties in the U.S. and passionate about ESG. Huey, thanks for joining me on today's episode. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this about this podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Today, we're going to be discussing your career, the benefits and challenges associated with working for a governmental entity, and the importance of emerging ESG initiatives in this space. I'm excited to learn from you. And truthfully, you're our first governmental CFO. So uh, yeah, I think I have a lot to learn from you. So let's get started. Oh my gosh, the pressure's on. <laughs> um, first, and this is an easy one, let's start with you and, and your story as to how you got to where you are today. Great, great. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep it short because I'm very passionate about this story, So, but I'll give you the, the bullet points. So, you know, I started off as an engineer, um, you know, and tried to, was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I went to to business school, got an MBA. I spent a lot of time in consulting. And as I, you know, learned more, the good thing about consulting, you know, management consulting is it gives you an opportunity to see a lot of different industries. Yeah. So I spent time in automotive. I spent time in mortgage. You know, I spent time um, in manufacturing. But the one thing that I had an itch for, it kept growing, it kept growing, particularly um, when I was living in D.C., was this whole idea of public service and giving back to society. Right. And you can give back to society working in the private sector. But um, it, there's a different there's, there's a different challenge and a different uh, calling, if you will, different level um, in, the, in the public sector versus the private sector. And so 
you know, while all this was going on, this kind of culminated at the same time when the Flint water crisis hit. And so my beautiful wife got an opportunity to come back to Michigan. We, we had gotten married in Michigan, went to D.C., had an opportunity to come back to Michigan to work for a foundation. Um, it was kind of a dream job for us at the time. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out how am I going to be the husband and be the daddy and move back with the family? What am I going to do with Michigan? And I got a phone call. Um, you know, do you want to be Flint's CFO? And I jumped at the opportunity, right? I jumped at the opportunity because not only was I able to go and provide all this finance process, the tech risk and controls, management training, all this technical training um, that I had gotten through all my years of serving, um, you know, mostly private sector clients, but I also got a chance to go to what could have what could be considered the epicenter of one of a social of one of the biggest social challenges at the time, you know, Flint in 2017, the water crisis was, you know, happened in 2015, 2016. And so at that time, the, there was there was still a majority of lead lines. Um, they had not been replaced with um, copper as part of the initiative to um, replace those lead lines during the water crisis. So I jumped at it and learned a lot. Um, I'm a lot less naive now than I was back then, but I look back on the last five years and I'm, I'm very proud, very excited about the work I've done um, for, you know, three of the more, I'd say more of the um, more, I say, impoverished and challenged in terms of socioeconomic factors um, and, uh, you know, communities that have been disadvantaged in Flint, um, Metro Detroit, Pontiac. And finally, Wayne County, which is the county where Detroit is. And that's where you are today. You're the CFO for Wayne County, Michigan? That is correct. So just for those listeners that don't know, uh, Wayne County is where Detroit is obviously the biggest uh, city in Wayne County. Um, but, you know, we work, we have county operations, which include some oversight over the city of Detroit. But, you know, the rest of, of Wayne County, too, which includes Dearborn, which has the highest per capita population of Arab, Arab Americans in the United States. So tell us about what it's like to work as the CFO for, for Wayne County, Michigan, and, and what your main responsibilities are. Well, I'm responsible for, you know, the typical public sector CFO um, issues. I'm responsible for making sure that we have, uh, you know, we have a clean ledger and we have a, we've accounted for and are monitoring the county's finances. I'm responsible for budget. And for those that don't know, public sector budgeting is a big deal. Um, government budget. Yeah, you can't you can't spend unless, unless somebody approves it. So, you know, somebody has to approve it, somebody has to approve the budget for it, and then somebody has to approve the contract. And so budget is a very big deal because it, des- it determines where it's kind of kind of the speedometer, if you will, of where the um, or the big dashboard of where the initiatives are. So, you know, put your money where your mouth is, you know, the legislative and the executive all have to agree that this is what we're going to fund for the next year. Right. So budget is a very big deal. And there's a lot of horse trading that happens and a lot of uh, power brokering that happens in order to get a budget done because you can't spend more than what's in your budget. So budget's a big deal. We're also responsible for payroll, for traditional finance functions. Your payroll grants oversight from a financial reporting perspective. Um, you know, making sure uh, making sure county benefits are administered properly so our employees have their 
the, the proper benefits um, and, and benefits administration. We also, a big part of what we do is risk management, which includes the, um, which includes the insurance and, under, and not just insurance brokering, but also understanding the risks that are inherent in county operations. Um, one of the big things that we're dealing with right now is the fact that we have bridges that are in poor repair. I think this is an infrastructure challenge throughout the United States. It's a big deal for us because we have to figure out how we're going to make sure we have the right, we've addressed the right risks, we have the right mitigating actions and mitigating action plans if something very bad goes wrong with any of our infrastructure, including our bridges. Big part of a conversation I had earlier today. Um, so those are the big things. I think one thing that's unique to government, particularly at the county level, is the fact that we also own um, assessments and legalization. That's the process of assessing taxable value. For, for some of your listeners that don't know, taxable value, um, you know, your, your, your property, your, your home, your businesses, you, you have an assessment of what that value is, and that's where property taxes come into play. But as you can imagine, that's yeah, a very important function for a government that relies on property taxes because that's where your revenue growth is. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a highly controlled, highly specialized process to assess those values. And that sits also within the finance function uh, under, under me. So two questions for you. First of all, um, so how do you deal with expenditures that pop up throughout the year that weren't initially, uh, initially budgeted for? Oh, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad you said that because I failed to mention procurement, which also is a lightning rod in uh, government because the person that was from, responsible for procurement has to make sure that what the county spends, what the government entity spends um, is done in such a way that meets very, very highly regulated ordinances at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And to that point, um, that happens all the time. What we tr- what we do um, as to the best of our abilities, you know, again, there's a two step process when you spend money. You have to have the budget for it in the right account, and then on top of that, you have to have the approval from a procurement standpoint. If it's a big contract, the right level of uh, right series of approvals have to have taken place. That could include the legislative body for us. That's our commission. And so, with that being said, unexpected spend. Um, happens quite a bit because things go bump in the night all the time. And so what we have to do is we have to, okay, let's check our budget. Is Do we have enough in our cushion? Is this a, is this a big issue? Have we underspent somewhere do we, so that we can overspend here? Um, hopefully the answer is yes. Else, you know, we, 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 haven't, had a, we haven't had a real issue with having, having to break the piggy bank. Um, at the county, but you know, sometimes you're in a situation where you're running a tight budget, and you have to break that piggy bank. Um, and what I mean by that is, you have to either draw into your contingency, or worst case scenario, you have to draw into what's called your fund balance, which is your historic surpluses, not necessarily this year's budgetary surplus that you're running. So, those are the steps from a budgetary standpoint that we would go through. You know, do we have some money that we're underspending somewhere? Maybe a project is when we started a project late or something like that. And then obviously from a contractual standpoint, if it's a service that's really needed, we have to go through and then have extra scrutiny from our legislative body. Because the first question is, well, if this was an unexpected expenditure, then I want to make we want to make sure that you have um, figured out how you're going to pay for it without going over budget. 
And the next question is, how do you deal with politics? Because, I mean, in corporations, <laughs> there's politics, but you are literally oh dealing with politics. So how do you make sure at the end of the day that the budget is fair? Yes. How do you make sure the budget is fair? Um, I will say this, that I still, after five years of, of, you know, of, of performing this function, I still haven't, I've still learned a lot of lessons. It's not fun to learn lessons in the middle of a budget hearing or when the cameras are rolling at a public commission meeting, but um, I'm still learning lessons. But I will will put it this way. Um, It's trial and error. Um, You you definitely want to make sure that you have some good relationships across multiple functional areas. And just a little bit more nuance for for listeners, I work at a county in the state of Michigan, which means that the state constitution of the local charter, you know, specifically says that that the county treasurer will be elected. The county register of deeds will be elected. The county clerk will be elected. Whereas in a lot of your um, local government structures, some, a lot of those positions are appointed by either the, the legislative body or the executive, the mayor or whatever. So that makes it a lot more difficult because you have a lot of offices who are that are led by people that are elected by the general public, which means there has to be a lot more, let's just say, making sure that the general public is, <laughs> is abreast of certain situations a la politics, right? That's the way that works. And it makes it more of a challenge. Now, um, with that being said, one of the things I've, I've found that is very effective, it's not foolproof, but it's very effective, is being able to have kind of um, discussions with people behind the scenes, making sure that you respect the fact that there has to be a certain amount of um, public relations that go on yeah. You know, public officials have to make sure that when the cameras are rolling or the news or the media is present, that they have to be have a certain level of protection. So we have to, you know, there's some certain things where you just have to respect that. And, you know, maybe publicly you acknowledge something or some I've, t- I've taken a beating or a meeting or two um, publicly in order to help someone else save face. Um, and you just have to make a judgment call. Right. You have to make a judgment call. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing for me as a public official has been, okay, fine. These are the lines that no matter what will not be crossed. Right. We're not breaking any laws here. There's some things that there's some things that we're going to do that are are, are optically going to be something we might have to explain. Um, But ethically, you know, the way I thought always thought about it was optics, ethics and um, optics, ethics and legal. Right. Optics, okay, maybe there's some wiggle room there, the way people interpret certain things. Um, ethics, we won't cross ethical boundaries, right? And then from there, you know, after that, I'm, I'm not going to jail for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a good life. <laughs> I'm not going to jail for anybody. And they're not paying me enough. Um, they're not paying me enough to, you know, protect somebody from going to jail. So, but I've never, you know, I've never been in a situation where um, I've been asked to, you know, break the law. So, Fortunately, so you know, you just have to you. I, you know, I, I've made some mistakes again. Never crossed those bottom two lines, um, at least from my interpretation. So I've made some mistakes, um, and I've made some mistakes when the cameras are rolling. Um, but um, you know, you live, you live and learn. But you, yeah. you want to find people that you trust. If that, if such a thing exists in government, you want to find people that you trust, and then you go, and then you go from there. 
Yeah, well, from what you just said, I'm sure there's lots of parallels to the corporate world too. Like building relationships, extremely important. Um, you know, taking a beating so someone else can save face. I'm sure that happens every day too. And mm-hmm. yeah, just having, you know, your own moral compass and, and doing what's right at the end of the day. Exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, if you're morally, if you're morally, um, positioned when you get into government to do the right thing, so your DNA is going to help you quite a bit to know there's okay, this doesn't this isn't right. I'm not gonna do it. And that helps a lot. Yeah. I'm sure most people start there. I think uh, maybe somewhere yes. along the way you get beat up enough that that somewhat goes away. But um but yeah. Yeah it, you you <laughs> and I've taken I'm taking beatings for other people a lot. Um, but you're right. You're exactly right. It's, it's really, uh, it's really a, you know, it's a question of understanding your, you know, the more experience you have, the better off you are. Um, but you know, you got to start somewhere. And the last thing I want your listeners to say is, well, okay, well, I'm in experience. I'm gonna stay out of government because I don't want to have to do, go deal with, with what Newsom, um, dealt with and yeah <laughs> or whatever so <laughs> yeah i don't think it's unique to government though is what i'm trying to say i i think those right. uh yeah and that's right that's exactly right it's, it's definitely not unique to government by any stretch of the way. it's just a different level of scrutiny yeah definitely dollars right that's so. really interesting um so you've been there now for five years what are your proudest achievements let me correct you um or, or clarify myself better yet I've been in public sector uh, finance for five years. Okay. So I I went to city of, it's, it's, I'm saying that because we're getting close to my, my five-year anniversary of my first month at Flint, which, have been, which would have been September 2017. So we're almost at the five-year mark. And um, I think, you know, there, every single stop, particularly Flint, because I was, I was only in Pontiac for like an interim basis for like a half year, but in Flint, I think the biggest, you know, the, the thing I'm most proud of, and it was, you know, my first three months there. So, you know, the history of the water crisis, you know, the ill-advised attempt to move them to a temporary water source, which was the Flint River, the, um, you know, the, the, I could say the cocktail, I probably shouldn't use that word, but it's the word that's coming to mind, cocktail that was supposed to use, was supposed to be used for anti-corrosion on the lead pipes. Um, wasn't set up for the Flint River, um, lead leached into from the pipes into the water. The rest is, un, you know, is is tragic history. Yeah. So what ended up happening happened was they needed, you know, Flint ended up moving back to the the regional water authority, which had been developed um, to take, you know, take. You know, first it was Detroit's water system that Flint was on. They tried to move to, you know, to have their own water authority. They used a temporary water source. That was the that led to the problem, and they ended up having to come back to the newly created water authority um, that um, was really headquartered in Detroit. Right, so Detroit's water system was kind of recreated to into a water authority. Oversimplifying, but you know that's that's a story. First three four months there, we had to do a bond refund as part of the deal that the state of Michigan worked out with the, with the with the county, with the city and with the water authority. We had to refund a number of, of bonds that, um, you know, that were set up to fund the original water authority that the city of Flint had gotten into, even though the city of Flint was not going to use 
that is the permit that water authority at Genesee County Water Water Authority, a Flint-based water authority, uh, for their primary source, they were going to use it as a secondary source. Long story short, not to bore your listeners to tears, those bonds had to be refunded. On top of that, we had to go to the public and and explain to them why it was important for them to lock into a 30-year deal with um, the Detroit-based water authority, Great Lakes Water Authority is the name of it. And, you know, even though that was the original precipice for, for them getting off of Detroit water was too expensive. So the last thing, so the selling, if you will, or the promoting of this long-term deal on top of the refunding of bonds, I didn't get a training for this, right? So to go into a situation like that right off the bat, you know, my appointment, my appointment was finalized in November and we got that water deal signed, I think at the beginning of December. And the refunding of the bonds happened the following early spring, late winter. To have all that happen within, you know, within three months, I'd say, of my actual official appointment. And then April was when the city was, you know, city um, had its full governing powers restored. For those that don't know, Flint was put under receivership, which is in, with emergency managers. And because they were put under receivership, the emergency managers and by default, if you will, um, the governor, those the state was the one that made the final determination to move Flint to the Flint River. So to get the city back after all that happened and all the cameras that left, to get Flint back to be the CFO when Flint was moved back to local full local authority as you know, as, as you know, original uh, local authority, very prominent. Because again, when you look in the history books, you look at Flint, you look at the water crisis. But the end of the story is the restoration of power to the local citizens. I was a CFO during that time. And in order for that to happen, you needed to have stability in the finances. And I was a CFO that oversaw that. Very proud, very cool. Fast forward to Wayne County. And we just haven't posted LinkedIn yet. You're going to see it soon, man. But we just got through with yet another two-notch upgrade. So while all this was going on, Wayne County was had been on the brink of receivership. And the process to completely reverse um, being on the brink of receivership to a point that we're at A1 wow. with Moody's now. Yes. So, you know, we're hoping, knock on wood. I literally knocked on wood, by the way. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I did hear that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we plan, we, we hope that we will get another um, upgrade as well from Fitch. So we've gone from near, you know, basically speculative, what used to be junk bond, all the way to the very top of the middle investment, all the way to the point that we're just south, just south of Prime, um, as it relates to, as definitely as it relates to Moody's, if not uh, also Fitch. So I think that's very cool. Right. Yeah, because absolutely. Again, one of the, that's huge. You think about one of the big social issues that we've seen, at least in the state of Michigan, is this whole idea of local control and local governance and, and the idea of you know states taking over local 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 governing bodies. It happens a lot in Michigan. I know in certain certain states it happens, happens as well. Of course, we all know about Flint. There's several other situations throughout the state of Michigan where the state has had to come over and take over for local you know, governing bodies. And it's a big question of this whole idea of 
local governmental control and, you know, having people from a state that's elected from a state's political and social issues that are that are embedded in that. And to be a part of two or two communities, really three, but definitely two communities, one to make sure that we completely reversed what, you know, being at the tail end of the complete reversal of that situation to the point that, you know, we're, we're about to compete with the state in terms of credit rating here and, you know, if we keep it up. And then on top of that, to be the CFO when Flint was returned to local control, I think you, you don't, that's not something that you stop at. Yeah. Congratulations. Those are, those are two huge accomplishments. Thank you. Thank you. So having come from the corporate world and now into public sector, how, how did you prepare yourself for that transition? Sounds like a lot of it was trial by fire. It was trial by fire. So let me, you want to hear a funny joke? Sure. (laughs) So, so I got the call, right. We're going through the whole interviewing process and talking to people at the state and trying to, you know, get the agreements together and set a date. So I did what a normal person would do. I go order me, you know, some government finance and accounting books. And I go read through them page by page. This is fund balance. This is this accounting standard. This is this is what, um, you know, this is what Public Act 2 and the whole idea of governmental funds and all that sort of cool stuff, the technical stuff that you're supposed to know. Right. Funny. So when I get when I get um, to the office. Right. Of course, that all, it's not that that went out the window. I still needed it. But the real problems that I needed to dodge wasn't because, you know, I needed to understand what's in an accounting book and how to account for a capital lease. What I really needed to understand who the players were, why, you know, what what those who those stakeholders were. And, you know, kind of how the pieces on the chessboard play. This is a very political environment. Yeah. And because because you, you because you're working in a political environment, it's, as, it's, a, it's a cliche for a reason. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Right. And really understanding, you know, you know, understanding who do you call? Who do you call quietly? Who do you call to get, you know, you know, um, contextual information? Who do you call because you need you need some help, like political help? Just understanding the pieces on that chessboard are so important, right? The technical part is, you know, it is it's, it's super important too. You want to be able to scrutinize everything that comes across your desk. You want to be able to, I mean, you're going to sign the annual financial statement. So it'd be nice to be able to read them. Uh, but I think that, <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, it's, it's so important to understand who the players are and really start to figure out alliances pretty early. And they're, they're good guys and they're bad guys. You want to figure that out and discern as quickly as possible. Yeah. So let's switch gears for a minute and let's talk about ESG. So this is mm-hmm. um this is literally something I've only heard of in the last two years, even though it's been around for a while. So first of all... Mm-hmm. What is ESG? And secondly, why is it important to a CFO? Okay. So first ESG, let's talk talk about what ESG stands for, environmental social governance. So it is a collection of metrics um, upon which an organization is measured and then those measurements are disclosed, right? So that's, in a simple nutshell, that's what it is. How is it used? Well, it's used for a lot of different reasons. Um, it's used by organizations, you know, it's used in the corporate world 
to make sure that um, organizations that say that they're environmentally responsible, socially responsible, um, good governance, good governance uh, models um, is is they're rated on these metrics, and those metrics are hopefully as much as possible standardized. And then those those reports are then used and cascaded out to the general public. The rich, one of the original reasons for it is because you had a lot of organizations say, "Hey, we're green. We're social. We're, we're green. We're socially responsible. Um, you know, we we have good governance, et cetera, et cetera." Well, we need ways to standardize to measure that. And ESG, even though it's it's been around for a little bit, is still in its infancy, in my humble opinion, in terms of standardization of what's being measured where. ESG entails a couple of different things. Um, one of the things I, when you talk about the E and what's measured on the E, a couple of things, right? There's risk management, right? So let's talk corporate for a second. Risk management in terms of hey, everybody's going to be moving from carbon to to, to green soon, renewable at some point, right? We're going to move to a fossil-free environment. What is the transition risk for this particular organization, right? So they are very they're very heavily dependent on fossil fuels. That's that's a dink, right? There's a transition risk there. Now, something else, how much bad stuff, you know, how, how many greenhouse, how much greenhouse or carbon-based gases are emitted as part of their operations? So that's, you know, if you do really well, then you get good rating. If you do very poorly, you, you're it's bad rating. And this whole idea, I will say on the east side, we've got, we're more mature in terms of standardization of what we measure, right? We know how to measure emissions coming out, the smokestack. You, you hear people talk about scope one, scope two, scope three. Don't want to get too technical, but that's even bifurcating things, trafficating things even further, where scope one is focused on how much, how much bad stuff does your organization spew out into the world? Scope two is based on how what what are you using for power generation? So are you using carbon-based fossil fuel plants? Are you using wind energy to, to, to energize or, or provide power for your operations? And then scope three is a little bit more nebulous where people where where that's the review of okay, how much how, how many how much emissions are embedded in your um out inbound and outbound supply chains, right? So it's a little bit more difficult to measure that because then you're depending on somebody else to help you understand that. But my point is the E is pretty mature. It's more relatively mature compared yeah. to the S. What's the S look like? The S is a little bit more nebulous. What do we measure? So a lot of people might know Elon Musk got um, a ding and got delisted from an ESG Dow Jones index. Tesla got, I shouldn't say Elon, I should say Tesla got delisted because they have such poor S ratings. Well, what's that mean? Well, right in access, you know, labor, labor, um, labor, um, labor's right to organize. Certain um, plants in California had gotten bad press because of discrimination accusations. Some of that, some of that was founded, some of that was settled, right? So that played a big role in him, even though, hey, Tesla, green company, right? I mean, we're moving from the internal combustion engine to an electric vehicle. So Tesla's very good in E, in theory, but on the S side, they were struggling. That was that led to the delist. And then finally, the G, which is how, you know, how how good of a governance model does the organization have? I'm using the corporate sector because it's a little easier to explain in corporate than I move my way to public sector in a minute. So is is do we have a lot of internal control issues? Cybersecurity is a big is a big piece of the G. 
Um, but the, the G is if we have management turnover, you know, you know, we've got people that continuously go to jail because they're cooking the books. Those sorts of things will get you is what the G is supposed to measure, right? How well are people ethically managing the organization so that you can rely on what's coming out from a financial standpoint, from an operational standpoint, reporting standpoint, and trusting. So that's what ESG in a nutshell is, right? And, you know, we can, trust me, I can spend hours and hours. You don't have the time <laughs> talking about it. But one of the things I'm excited about, you know, is this whole concept of bringing ESG to the public sector and how does it translate? Well, right now, the rating agencies have started to um, rate, you know, counties, cities, local, you know, local authorities, trans- transit authorities on their ESG scores. And so it's a combination of two things. What's going on in the geographic um, boundaries of the um, of, of that of that government government um, organization, and then what's going on with the operations? So I will tell you this because I can't because it's public information, and I'll give it to you in a nutshell. The county has you know recently gotten its ESG scores, but you know the problem is how do you measure emissions countywide? So one of the things we got. Um, we, we got um, bad scores for us because our historic dependence on the automotive industry. Okay, yeah, manufacturing is very heavy in Wayne County, even though I think we're less reliant on it um, than we were, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But because of our historic reliance on, um, on uh, the automotive industry, manufacturing, heavy manufacturing, that, was, that hurt us in the E standpoint. Um, but what helped us in the E, and this is one of my cha- one of my concerns with, with with it, is that even though in theory, subjective, we um, got poor scores because of our historic dependence on manufacturing, we got good scores because our environmental related risk is light. Right, we're not prone to wildfires like you see on the uh, yeah in the West. We're not prone to hurricanes like Florida or the Gulf Coast. We're not prone to tornadoes like you see in, say, Tornado Alley, like Oklahoma. So, you know, a lot of people will tell you that, you know, climate refugees will be coming to Michigan. It gets cold. You might get a tornado, but you're not seeing the level of climate-related catastrophic weather occurrences that you see in, say, Florida or California or wherever. Here's my problem with that. So. Because you combine the two into one rating or one one rating category, you, you deem Florida who might, you know, a county in Florida who might be expediting the process to electrify their fleet and, you know, encourage local businesses to move to renewables or what have you. But they get deemed because they're in a hurricane alley. Yeah, I, I might be slower to do that. I'm not saying that we are, but I might be slower to do that. But I'm getting better scores simply because of my geographic location. Yeah. The hurricane. When you see a hurricane hit Michigan, you know it's over. So <laughs> it's, it's just not going to happen, right? So why should I get that? So if I'm looking at it, but if you think about it, who's driving the need for ESG in public sector? Right now, unfortunately, the only people that are driving ESG scores in the public sector are your institutional investors, right? That's why the rating agencies are doing it. I've yet to see my, my Boston County executives go to the public and say, hey, reelect me and I'm going to make sure your ESG scores are higher. 
<laughs> I don't remember him saying that because he's not held accountable to it because the concept isn't mature enough, particularly in the public sector. Yeah. The other stakeholders are looking at it. It's just the fact that right now the bond investors, your institutional investors are worried about it because they want to make sure they pop a million dollars into um, into securities that are you know that are um, issued by the county. They want to make sure that they get their money back. And so there's carbon risk, and then there's you know it's carbon carbon mitigation, and you can argue that they might be indifferent. Now, so you know, so strictly from a uh, from a risk perspective, right? So it's a bit in its infancy. I'll admit that because other stakeholders aren't um, as and I say I'm gonna hate to use the word advanced, but I'm gonna say advanced in in their um, demand for this type of information. I think a lot of local, a lot of local entities will, particularly on the S side, right? You know, affordable housing is a big, big deal in Southern California. It's less of a deal here because we have a, we have a smaller home per capita homeless population, I think. Big deal in LA, right? So this whole idea of access to affordable housing is a bigger issue in LA. So, you know, obviously if I'm running for mayor of LA, I'm going to talk about how I'm going to lower than you know increase the rate of affordable housing. And that's what you're going to measure me on in terms of the S. Other places like say Detroit, it might be a health disparity issue. I'm not saying there's not a health disparity issue in LA, but access to equitable health, right? Um, we saw that as a big, big problem in the city of Detroit because of because of the pandemic. We had mortality rates that which were higher than our infection rates relative to other places in the country. And the reason for that was because we had comorbidity issues. We had poor health going into the COVID. And that's something in theory that needs to be measured. Well, that's something that's going to be very specific to us. So how does that work in terms of ESG? The county executive is saying, hey, here's my ESG score. Pay attention to what I've done for health disparities. Mayor of LA is going to say, "Hey, here's my ESG scores. Look, you know, pay close attention to access to what I'm going to do with affordable housing." They're both going to go straight to those metrics because those are very specific to them in terms of what their constituents are looking for yeah. as they go to the ballot box. So that's another challenge. Why standardize when I know what I want, what I care about, and need access to locally? Yeah, it's kind of a way where people can be held accountable. Uh, their ESG score. Like, did they do what they said they were going to do? Shameless plug. Shameless <laughs> plug. Um, I don't even know if you know this or not, but I've started to write for Forbes um, on this whole idea of ESG. Right now, it's ESG in the public sector. My prayer is that the next article, my second article, will come out um, in uh, by Monday. My first article dealt with this very idea. Look at what is the possibility for using ESG, not just as a way to make sure that institutional investors understand the risk of getting their return on the coupons. Let's also use it as a way to baseline and benchmark, right? We can benchmark on the E, we can benchmark on the S, and we probably need to benchmark on the G too to make sure that we have um, uh, you know officials that are acting ethically and know what they're doing, right? So so, yes, I think that that how do you get there? Who drives that? Right. My hope was that, you know, people would just kind of notice me as you would get to a certain level of popularity 
And just like the SEC is, I, I'm not sure where the SEC is going to land in terms of, you know, they, I know that there's going to be climate disclosure, climate disclosure requirements uh, for publicly traded corporations, but the MSRB is out. They are the body that, that um, governs the uh, municipal, municipal, I'm sorry, the municipal bond uh, world. So they're the ones, just like the SEC is responsible for securities in the private sector, MSRB is responsible for security issuances in the public sector for municipal bonds. And so they had, they are currently looking at rules as it relates to both designated bonds, so these green bonds that are out there, making sure that there are rules around putting that label on there, but also um, disclosures that are related to um, ESG as well. So who's going to be, and what I'm getting to is who's going to be the first to say, hey, we need to do this. And right now there's not, you know, ESG has its own public perception issues, both on the left and the right. And so who's going to be that champion to say, hey, this is a great idea. I don't know who that's going to be. I was hoping that, you know, it would get so popular in the investor community that it will spill over. But I've yet to see that really happening at a, in, you know, in mass. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, but it is relatively new. Like I said, I've only heard of it in the last two years. So uh, I think it's got a long way to go, but it does. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting concept. So how have you been able to position yourself to, to be at the table as ESG standards and norms are being developed for, for local and state governments? Good question. So a couple of things. Um, the one thing about um, the public sector, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, the best way to do this is through the political avenue, I think. But it's, it's probably the hardest to do, but it's probably the most effective way. I've taken another approach where I'm working my way through professional organizations. So again, another shameless plug. Um, I'm part of what's GFOA is probably the the standard when it comes to government government finance work officers or the concept of government finance and accounting. Um, I'm chair, not chair. God no, I'm sorry. I'm on the board of directors for Michigan's GFOA, and I'm on one of the one of the advisory committees to the executive board at the national GFOA level. One of the things my committee looks at is called the Debt Advisory Committee. And one of the things it looks at is putting out best practices, advisories, and kind of having this finger on the pulse of what's going on in the highly regulated municipal bond world. Um, and so we we have a you know number of people that we work at different finance authorities, different local local governance governing organizations throughout the country. But uh, one thing that we uh, do, a, I, I think, a very good job of is, make, is making sure that we have access to, you know, I've, I've had a chance to meet the chair, uh, the past chair of MSRB. So um, making sure we have access to the right people that are making these decisions, but also, you know, positioning ourselves to be the ones to issue these best practices. And again, do your homework. But GFOA is probably the one predominant organization. We, 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 I don't have a, certi- I have a certification from AGA, which is the Association of Governmental Accountants. Um, both, also, both are based in Washington, D.C., by the way, but, um, or Metro D.C. But um, you know, GFOA has uh, issues certifications, uh, CPFO, for instance. So you, you can make 
you can judge for yourself. But I do believe that GFO is, is the predominant organization, professional organization when it comes to government finance. So we do a number of different things. We have that debt advisory committee, which I'm a part of. We also work, or I'm a part of a cross-functional or cross-sectional, I should say, um, organization called the Disclosures Industry Work Group or DIG, or Disclosures Industry Group. It's a cross-functional, cross-sectional organization made of people from my organization, which is GFOA, SIFMA, NABL, National Association of Bond Lawyers. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking out on some of the other, so I'm hopefully I'm not offending anybody because I'm blanking out on some of the other organizations that are a part of it. But if you think about the ecosystem in the very, very technical, advanced world of municipal, municipal bond issuances and structuring, um, you know, the key players at that table, um, you know, sit and dig and we work on you know, best practices and disclosures, right? So what's coming down the pike um, in terms of Washington, D.C., um, in terms of Congress, and in terms of MSRB or Treasury, and then making sure that we're keeping our, you know, keeping our, our constituents up to speed on best practices. So ESG is a component of it, right? So it's a two-way street. And, you know, right now the regulatory push isn't there. We're at the pulse of, hey, as this is, come into fruition as this is coming to maturity, these are the things you need to be thinking about. I can't think of any other organization that has issued any type of best practice on or any type of advisory on ESG as it relates to the finance uh, function in the public sector. I might be wrong, but I can't think of one. So last question on ESG, but what in, what investments are you guys making in ESG? Are you making any specific investments associated with it or do other investments just impact it? Um, as it relates to ESG, I will, I'm going to go, I'm going to go from say 10,000 to 30,000. So right now we're mulling over how we're going to spend our portion of the, um, how we're going to spend our portion of what we received through ARPA, you know, American Rescue Plan Act. Um, you know, just for the context, a lot of communities, big cities, smaller, smaller cities or medium sized cities and counties, and authorities receive through some formula, some um, portion of money through what's called the state and local fiscal relief fund, which was set up through ARPA, as well as as well as other funding mechanisms. When that was passed in 2021, um, our share was announced. It's, it's managed by the U.S. Treasury Department. Our share of that is $340 million, $339 million can change to be exact. And um, one of the things we wanted, we are working to set up, and I pray we follow through, but one of the things we're setting up is um, the idea of a sustainability office. So our game plan isn't necessarily to set up the measuring stick yet. It's more to set up function. Um, and my belief is that we informally already look at the S. We have to look at the S because, as I talked about earlier in the podcast, we have, um, you know, a heavy minority, popula- minority population in Detroit, large African-American population there. We have a heavy minority population in Dearborn with our Arab-American population. So we have we are we have a large, I would argue, underrepresented population. And so we have to adhere to those underrepresented communities. So we are already doing some of the S anyway. 
And so my hope is we can formalize that through a function within the county to take what we're doing from informal to formal, add more discipline to it, and then cover that, you know, instead of measuring, let's get the, let's, let's actually do something worth measuring. And then let's come back and let's measure what we're doing and then report it. One thing that we do want to do, and I think it would be a shame if I'm part of all these professional organizations, yet we're not doing voluntary disclosures. We should be doing voluntary disclosures um, as it relates to the E, as it relates to the S, as it relates to the G. So that's one of my personal goals as well as, well as one of my professional goals in the next three to six months. But the key thing is I want to make sure we have things to report on and to measure that are externally visible and formalized. And then we can come do our disclosures and then talk about how that impacts us from ESG standpoint. Yeah, I guess if you start doing all of these things involuntarily, when it when it becomes mandated, it'll be very easy for mm-hmm. you guys to make that transition. Yeah, and don't tell anybody I said this. This will be our little secret. Of course, that's <laughs> facetious because we're recording a podcast. But I really do want it to become formal because I am, you know, kind of a fan, kind of yeah. nothing. I'm really a strong fan and advocate yeah. for the concepts of ESG. I can naysayers. tell. Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the naysayers on the left, and I just just read an article in F, in financialtimes.com that talks about how ESG has its problems. And there's plenty of literature and articles and opinions out there, particularly on the on the left, or on the right, but on most people on the left that are concerned about it will tell you that it conflates uh, measures that we need to worry about versus measures that we really don't need to worry about. And it hides issues when it comes to um, to responsibility, whether it be corporate corporate responsibility or just ethical proper governing in the public sector. And my point is, you know, we got to start somewhere. Sit at the table. Let's get this thing fixed. Maybe we shouldn't be conflating the scores. Maybe we should make sure that every single issuance or every single disclosure as it relates to ESG, every single ESG report has three distinct scores or maybe it's nine distinct scores, or maybe it's 27 distinct scores, whatever it is, and you have a dashboard, whatever it is, but you got to start somewhere. Sit at the table and let's fix this thing. Mm -hmm. So Huey, last question, but what advice do you have for CFOs that are looking to make a meaningful and lasting impact on their organization? Uh, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. Is that, (laughs) as it relates to what I'm passionate about or is it related to anything that they're passionate about? Because I'm very passionate about this whole concept of bringing ESG to the table. So I can walk you through the journey that I've taken. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. I've always had a desire to save the planet, right? You know, obviously I've got this itch to, you know, in terms of my, um, you know, my public and social service ideas. And, and, you know, I've always had one of my, one of my passions, you know, that that's a general issue. My pet, the passion is really around climate change and environmentalism. My wife is the senior director of environmental justice um, at the White House. She just got appointed in April. Wow. So, so yeah, so we are green. We we definitely argue that we're a green family. And what you know, one of the, what I, one thing I wanted to kind of say is every single functional area, whether you work in marketing, where you whether you work in engineering, whether you work in uh, you know like me, like finance and accounting, everybody's going to have to sit at the table and provide their professional support um, to you know their professional gifts, if you will 
to solving this problem. We need engineers to design better batteries. We need people in marketing to be able to discern between greenwashing and true ethical, proper marketing of what a corporation or a public or public sector entity is doing. Right. So everybody's going to have has a role if they want to participate in this battle. And so I, as soon as I got you know, my feet wet um, in terms of being a CFO, right? So I'm spending all, I spent all this time in management consulting, trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do when I grew up. Um, and then, you know, okay, well, I guess I'm going to be a public sector CFO because I'm good at it. And I like it, even though it's boys hard. Um, so once I, once I, about two years in, I started looking at, okay, how does this, how does this capability now fit into this bigger fight that I want to be a part of. And ESG is kind is, is kind of where it where it manifests itself in. Now the hard part is how do you feed a family with this? Because this is kind of a, you know, kind of a I'm building that credibility in this space. Maybe in a year you're gonna, we're gonna do a podcast and I'm like the yeah, like a co-chair of MSRB, <coughs> excuse me, co-chair of MSRB responsible for ESG. That's a joke. <laughs> but some whatever, whatever it is. Um, but you know, at some level, I am dedicating the rest of my career at some level to this. Hopefully, you know, there'll be a market where I'm not, I'm making more than, you know, making more than 15, $15 a year <laughs> doing this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, I think that in, in all seriousness, I really do think that there's the need for passion and, you know, capability and skills to be at a table. It's just a question of when is the, I'm going to say in air quotes, the market, when is the market going to be ready to have this conversation? Does it have to be limited to the public sector? I don't know. Maybe it's the finance function's role in corporate responsibility, going back to my, going back to CSR and measuring what, you know, measuring how well and how effective an organization is as it relates to these, these E metrics, these S metrics, these, these ENS metrics is going to be very critical. And that's really, really, really um, maturing on the corporate side, whereas on the public sector side, it's less. So it's not really clear where we're going, but I know, you know, that's kind of where that vision of where I'm going has been kind of what pulled me into, hey, you know, understand your craft very well. Okay, once you understand your craft, Start doing research in terms of what other people, what how your craft is going to help save the world. Once you do that, then you know, learn as much as you can and find volunteer or volunteer ways that you're able to, um, you know, share what you share your intellect and also share some of the things your experiences with it. And oh, by the way, actually use your your current world as a playground to help formalize this. If that makes sense. Yeah. Your passion so is definitely the, clear. <laughs> the journey is not close to done. I have a lot of work to do to figure out how I'm going to, you know, how I'm going to achieve the goals I want to achieve. But um, no, I'm, I'm very excited about the future. Yeah. It sounds like your vision is pretty clear, even if the yeah. journey is just starting. And oh, Megan, I wish you would, you would understand how long it's taking me to get a clear vision. <laughs> but I think I'm, I think I'm very close now. <laughs> Huey, thank you so much for being my guest today. 
Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I, I guess I shouldn't have been as nervous as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about all of your experiences and the resulting insights that have come from it. And uh, yeah, I, I wish you and Wayne County, Michigan, all the best. I think Wayne County, Michigan is, is lucky to have you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll tell my boss you said that. <laughs> <laughs> And to all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Persona. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personive.com. Thanks for listening.